Well, good morning. We're going to pick up with the Sermon on the Mount, starting with Matthew chapter 6. And let's, let's just start with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you and we come to your Son, to his words, to the essence of his teaching and his intention and hopes for us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will give each of us the strength to follow what he would have us understand and to think and to be as he would have us be. Because that, Father, is our whole intention for living this, this life that we live in the flesh until he come. That we might be as you and as he would have us be. And so please do strengthen us in our understanding and especially afterwards with the strength psychologically, spiritually to do and to be these things. Please be with us, Father, because we simply love you. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Okay, so Matthew chapter 6. Well, I've been emphasizing all the way through that the Lord Jesus is encouraging us in the, in the sermon to be spiritually minded. And so much of what he says is focused upon our, our mind, our thinking. And Matthew chapter 6 verse 1, take heed. Well, the Greek means to hold the mind towards. Hold your mind on this point that you do not your arms before men to be seen of them. Now, this is the litmus test, I think, of spirituality and genuineness in our Christian walk, whether we are doing things to be seen of others or whether this is from the heart. There is one advantage, I think, of living a fairly isolated Christian life where maybe because of factors beyond your control, you can't get to, to a church, you can't get to, to meetings, etc. And the reason is that you then have less temptation to do things just to be seen of men. The problem with church life, going along regularly to meetings, mixing with the same crowd, roughly the same time of day, etc., is that you are tempted to do things to be seen of men. And the, the big question is, but how would they see this? Well, if I did that, they might think that, and, and so on and so forth. Now, he uses the very same Greek phrase in Matthew 23, verse 5, about the Pharisees, who did all their works, he says, motivated by the desire to be seen of men. Now, the people that he was talking to were poor people, were secular people for the most part, and for them, the, the Pharisees were bad news. And for us also, we read the Gospels and we're almost set up to despise this group of people. But a number of times, and this is only one of them, the Lord seems to be saying, be careful because in essence you can be the same as them. Why is there this huge amount of material in the Gospels about the Lord's altercations with the Pharisees when they were a very small group of people, probably at the maximum, not more than 5,000 of them? Why is there all this emphasis? I think it's because God in his wisdom and the Lord in his wisdom uh, saw that actually those men were the extreme form of the flesh, the flesh that we all have and the tendencies that we all have. And so in those fallacies who ultimately did the Lord Jesus to his death, we see, I think, our own weakness coming to its ultimate term. And I suggest that that is one reason why there is so much emphasis upon the, the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, Matthew 23, 5, did all their works to be seen of men. And the Lord is saying here to poor people, secular people, 
people who are not Pharisees, people like you and I, don't be like them. You also can do the same. You also can be motivated by what others will think of you and others' perceptions of you. The person who is secure in Christ is not so concerned about all that stuff. Otherwise, he says, you have no reward of your Father who is in heaven. Now, this idea of reward is quite common in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.12. Great is your reward in heaven. It's as if you get the reward ticked off, as it were, in this life, straight away. And yet we think, well, are we out just to get a reward? And we remember Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And of course, the, 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 the contrast is between sin paying wages and we in Christ being given a, a free gift. And yet... Clearly, the New Testament talks a lot about reward, and the word really means payment, wages. John 4.36, He that reaps in the Lord's work receives wages and gathers fruit unto life eternal. And just here in chapter 6, you can see this word reward, the Greek word in Matthew 6 here, verse 1, and again in, in verse 2, uh, and in verse 5, and in verse 16. We know from Revelation 22, verse 12, that the Lord comes from heaven to give us the rewards. And yet in another sense, we all work for a penny a day. It's the same for all of us. So I would say that salvation is by pure grace. But the nature of our eternity will be a reflection of what we have done in this life. And so there is a reward that is reckoned in heaven for every good work. This is why... In Revelation, right at the end, we, we have this picture of the judgment whereby two books are opened. One is the book of life. You're either in it or you're not, salvation or, or not. And the other is a book out of which people will be judged according to their works. So all that we do is noted in heaven. Now, it is a basic feature of humanity, of our psychological structure, that we want to be rewarded for our labor. And employers realize that. They have little schemes and big uh, organizations to reward people for their labor. You go to McDonald's, what do you see? Who was the, the best employee of the week, of the month, and, and so forth? We need recognition for our works. And the Lord is saying, you, you mustn't get that in this life if you're one of my people. You mustn't take that now. You are going to get that, but it's in the kingdom to come. It's in the final recognition of labor when the Lord Jesus returns. And so that basic human need of recognition of works is accepted by God, and we're going to get it. But as with so many things, we have to recognize that it's not now. It's in the life to come. And this is where our belief in the coming of Christ and our belief in the eternity of God's kingdom and the reality of Judgment Day has absolutely colossal meaning for us in, in this life. Because it is that feeling of being unappreciated which is behind so much depression, that feeling of insignificance, that what I have done is not perceived, is not recognized by my kids, by my partner, by my employers, by this, that, that and the other. We, we simply don't uh, recognize that. Uh, and we, we feel, we hunger for that recognition. And yet, 
It will come. That's what the Lord is saying. But not right now in this world. It's so often true, isn't it, that you might do some good work for somebody else and it's just not understood. Now, for example, you might decide to go and visit someone in hospital. On the way there, you realize that, oh, hang, I forgot my cell phone and I'm really waiting for a call from somebody. Oh, so you've got to go back and get your cell phone. On the way to the hospital, you get lost. If you're driving, maybe you get a puncture. And then when you get there, there's nowhere to park. And then, you know, hospitals are like, you You can find the ward where this person is. And finally you get there, and you think, well, I can only stay for 10 minutes. And maybe someone else is there, and they think, huh, Duncan came, and you know what, he only spent 10 minutes and he was gone. Well, yeah, it's all the other stuff. It's the forgetting of your cell phone, it's the getting lost, uh, uh, transport problems and so forth. It's that which God notices. And it is that which is so difficult to cope with in this life where somebody, you overhear somebody saying, well, Duncan only came and you know what, he, he, spent, he only spent 10 minutes there. Yeah, it, it's that which is difficult, isn't it, for, for all of us, for absolutely all of us to cope with. That you know, I, I was only there for, for, for 10 minutes. Well, we, we hunger for that recognition. That, you know what, I went through this, that, and the other, and you wouldn't understand that. Well, no, you wouldn't. But that's the point, that you will get that reward in God's kingdom. That's the point. Now, there's something else I would like to, to note here, and it's this. That, in my experience, some of the most active workers that I have known for the Lord, both brothers and sisters, have ended up being marginalized, have ended up being pushed off committees and, and the, main, uh, the, main, the main stream of the community in which they're working, be it a, a, a mission, a missionary organization, be it an ecclesia, a church, whatever it might be. Some of the most active workers are pushed off Somehow, they're marginalized, they're, they're put out onto the edge, onto the outer, for various reasons, usually jealousy, but whatever. Why is that? And I've seen this so many times that I start to scratch my head and wonder why. You come here to Matthew 6, and you get the reason. God loves those people who are working so hard for him, and he wants to reward them, but he sees that what they're doing is getting a lot of kudos in this life. He says, oh, I love you so much, I don't want you to get all that now. I want you to have an eternal reward for what you're doing. And so, in his wisdom, he moves them to the side so they don't get all that praise of men. Because he wants to give it to them in the last day. So verse 2. When you do your alms, your charity, do not sound a trumpet before you. Now, I just made the point that the Lord was talking to dirt poor people for the most part and certainly uh, mainly secular people who were non-religious Jews. And they hated the Pharisees, they despised them, and we in our reading of the Gospels are encouraged likewise, I think, to despise the Pharisees and to think, wow, how could those guys be like that? And yet this is yet another example of where the Lord is saying, you in essence can be like that. When you do your arms, don't be like them. Now, the idea of uh, sounding a trumpet, the allusion appears to be to this big bronze collection trumpet in the temple where the wealthy loudly poured all their large numbers of little pennies. And yet he's assuming, isn't he, 
that all those who follow him will actually do their arts. He just says, be careful that you don't do it like the Pharisees. Now, at first blush, those who heard him would have said, yeah, but I've only got a few pennies. Uh, I'm not like them. But he's saying, be careful that you're not, even though you're poor. So the idea is that you who are poor, he's saying, you also, of course, will do your alms, will do your charity. Now, there is... uh, a strange thing going on in the world economy has been going on the last uh, generation or so, and that is that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. That is true in the West, in the East, uh, in the developing world, whatever you want to call it. It's all over the planet. And therefore, the poor, to whom the gospel is preached, uh, and who form the majority numerically of those in the body of Christ, they can easily assume, oh yeah, all this stuff about generosity, that's not for me. Yes, 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 tick, 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 this point, that point, but all that stuff about generosity, that's not for me. That's for the wealthy. And yet, what the Lord is saying is that it's for you. When you do your arms, he's saying, I assume that if you're following me, as just something I take as read, that you are going to be doing your arms. Now, again, the, uh, the, the uh, monetarism, the capitalism, of the world in which we, we live has led us to the, to the view, maybe, that we can't actually do anything without money. And that, that's a myth. The idea of doing good can be done by all of us quite independently of money. So when was the last time that you gave, you gave of what you have in various ways to someone else? And as I say, don't just think about money. And he says that the, these uh, Pharisees do it, that they may have glory of men. And I think the emphasis might be on the word they, that they might have glory. And the point is, you should be doing it so that God gets the glory. They have their reward, he says there, um, <clears throat> at the end of verse 2. And uh, the Greek translated have there, it, it can mean to, uh, to receive fully, they've got their reward. Uh, but interestingly, it can mean to keep away. So he's, uh, he's making a play there on words. They're keeping away their reward by doing how they are so that they get their reward now. If you get your full reward now, if you're seen as a top bloke, as a good guy and all that, then you're keeping yourself away from any future reward. And because this is a, a major principle that the Lord is outlining here, don't be surprised, therefore, If you find yourself marginalized to some degree, whereby your good works now cannot be done uh, in the eyes of men because everyone thinks maybe you're a bad guy or because just how the Lord has his way of operating to put you in a situation where you are not in the public eye. And thank God for that. There are some who, who sort of struggle and squirm against that all their lives to get back in the club. And just take it as God's hand in your life. So then, it seems to me that um, God really does want us to um, do these good works, but in secret. Because, unfortunately, God cannot give us the reward if we're also getting it in, in this life. Now, he goes on then in verse, verse 3, Don't let your left hand know 
what your right hand is doing. Now, there was a strong Jewish tradition that the, the right hand side of a man was his spiritual side. And the left hand side was the equivalent of the, the New Testament devil, the, uh, the flesh. And so I think what the Lord is saying is, what the Lord is saying is, try to consciously do your good works unknown to you. Can you shut the door, please? Because otherwise, if they're done consciously, you will not, in any sense, get your reward. Now, the idea of unconscious service, you get very much in the, uh, the parable of Matthew 25, verse 39, when the Lord says in the parable that those whom he will reward in the last day will, will argue back with him. When he says, well done, when I was hungry, you fed me, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink, they will turn around and say, Lord, no, we didn't. Now, that's a pretty uh, persuaded person who is going to argue back at the day of judgment with the Lord Jesus. And they're going to argue back. When did we see you? And did this, that, the other to you? This is Matthew 25, 39. So it's the same idea, that your good deeds must be unconscious, must be an outflow of your way of life. Because, verse 4, your father who, who sees in secret himself shall reward you openly. By the way, he himself. There is a, a strong theme in the Bible that the Lord Jesus is the judge, and yet also that it is God. Now how that shall work out mechanically, if you like, at the last day, I don't know. Maybe it's simply saying that, uh, yes, it will be the Lord Jesus, but he will be a very intense manifestation of the Father himself. The Father himself shall reward you openly. Or it can be that God himself is present at the day of judgment, because after all, he shall wipe away all tears from off all faces. And God himself, this is quite an emphasis, uh, shall be with us at the day of judgment. This is quite clear uh, the end of the book of Revelation. And I see no reason to not take that literally. Now, as I think many of you know, I, I have the view that God is a corporeal person, that he exists in a literal form. And that the light at the end of the tunnel for us is that we shall meet him. This was Job's great hope, that in my flesh I shall see him. Now, the idea that he sees in secret. This is the, the essence of what he's interested in. Who you are when nobody is looking. That's, that's the essence, isn't it? And we've talked earlier about how we shall be rewarded. And I've said that salvation is the gift, the penny a day. And yet there is this major doctrine of works being rewarded that there is significance to our labor, to what we do in this life, because God notices it. The idea of secret things being judged is, of course, picked up later on, Romans 2.16, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men. 1 Corinthians 4, verse, verse 5, that all things shall be opened, and the hidden things will be brought out of darkness. And that's why in, in Luke 12, verse 2, the Lord argues that we shouldn't be hypocrites, because in the end, all shall be open. And so, 
we are being told without any question <clears throat> that what is hidden shall be open at the last day, and it is the hidden things that shall be judged. That is not to say that public sin is not an item. Of course it is. Um, <clears throat> and yet we can easily think that because that's all the society looks at, or that's all that God looks at. Yet the emphasis is quite clearly that it is the, the hidden things of darkness. It, it is what is going on within human minds which will be judged. It's who you are when nobody is looking. It's what you think about as you walk down the street. It's what you think about as you lie in bed just before you go to sleep. What you think about when you first wake up. These are the secrets of men. What you dream about. What your mind churns over in the day, in the night. There will be a public dimension, I think, to the Day of Judgment because the Father himself will reward openly. And that means that we will learn from the judgment process of each other. And as I made the point, I think, last time, the purpose of the Day of Judgment is for our benefit. It is not to give God information. It's not like a kind of a human court whereby the judge needs to be informed and to get the information clear in their own mind. <clears throat> God knows that right from the start. He doesn't need any process of judgment day to, to prove that to him. But what he does want is that we shall understand each other and in that process understand ourselves, rather like seeing someone's biography or reading someone's biography. You come to some self-understanding very often. <clears throat> and of course this is the only way, as I see it, that all the, the hopeless division that there is within the body of Christ and that always has been could ever finally be resolved. I mean, how can we all live together forever? when we are so bitterly divided. I think it can only be by seeing each other judged and understanding each other. And them, of course, understanding us and so forth. Now, again, the Lord repeats his point in verse, verse 5. <clears throat> when you pray, don't pray as the hypocrites do, that they may be seen of men. And you've got the same phrase in verse 18, that you appear that you are not seen unto men to fast. Now, as I've said, one of the problems with church life is going regularly to the same place at the same time, mixing with the same crowd of people, discussing plus minus the same kind of issues, and doing the same sort of routines. There's nothing wrong with that. That is part of the ties that bind. That is part of, of God's purpose to, for his, his people. But the problem is that it can very easily lead to a being seen of men, whereby our decision-making process is influenced by, ah, but they would think this if we were to do that, and they might this if, if we did that. <clears throat> That's all justified very often as uh, a seeking for unity. But let's just face it, that unity has been used, has been misused, by virtually everybody, from, from Hitler to Stalin to, to the whole lot of them, that we must have national unity at all costs, and therefore we shall do this, that, the other, and principle goes out of the window. We are called to live according to the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the essence of our lives, that's why we do in the study. And if others don't like that, well, they don't like it. Even if we stand with our backs to the world, absolutely and literally, that is what we have to do. 
Otherwise, we're going to get into this whole thing of being seen of men. So the Lord says, verse 6, When you pray, go into your room and shut your door. Now, of course, he was the Word made flesh, and all his thinking and reasoning is based so much upon Old Testament passages. And here I think he has in view Isaiah 26, verse 20, which talks about the remnant of the last days going into their chamber and shutting the door and praying. He must surely have that in mind. Until the indignation be overpassed. And I think he has in view there the, the tribulation that is to come around the time of his coming. And he's saying that that, that is, uh, Isaiah is saying that it's possible that that need not touch us if we are in prayer. And so the Lord is saying that as you will pray so intensely in the last day, pray now. Because this might be your last day. And of course we think of Elisha in 2 Kings 4 who likewise shut the door and prayed. There's a very... Uh, personal, intimate feel here that, that I don't want to be disturbed by anything or anyone. What that might translate into in 21st century life is just going somewhere where you can be alone and uninterrupted to pray. Now, there's, straight away, there's something there for, uh, say, young families living in small apartments, let's say, with, with kids, and it's very difficult to actually get any time alone, in quiet. And yet, I think you can translate this into the Lord saying, even if it's four minutes, go to the toilet and pray. Shut your door. Have that personal relationship with him. And your father, he says in verse 6, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father shall reward you openly. All the emphasis on the, the pronouns there, you, when you pray, enter into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father, and your Father shall reward you openly. If you're reading that as an English teacher, uh, correcting kids, you put a red circle around all those pronouns and say, you don't need to use all them, do you? But of course, the, the point is that you have a personal relationship with God, with your Father. And you see this in the Psalms, especially Psalm 71. All the time, David is addressing God all the time like this, you, your, uh, yours, etc. It really is a personal relationship. Just note that when you read the Psalms. <clears throat> How many times these personal pronouns are used in prayers to God? Don't pray, verse 7, using vain repetitions. Well, yes, he may well have in, in view the sort of idea of rosaries and this kind of stuff. Uh, but the Greek literally means to stutter or to stammer. Don't stutter and stammer. Now, what's the point of saying that? When you're with someone who stutters, you know why it's so frustrating for you? Because you know how they're going to finish the sentence. When you're with someone who's stuttering and stammering, he says, Yeah, you're going to say good morning. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha, Roger. You're going to say good morning. And it's frustrating because we know where they're getting to. And of course, this is exactly what the Lord is talking about here, isn't it? That your father knows what you 
what you have need of, verse 8, before you actually get the words out. Now, I think what he's saying is then that God knows your needs and he will provide. So stop keeping on about that. And of course all this is leading up to the Lord's Prayer, to the model prayer, where of course there is only really one request and that is for the kingdom to come, for daily bread uh, and so on, um, and for forgiveness. Not for specifically stating all the specific needs that we have of housing, uh, pensions and, and all the things we worry about and cars and all these material things. Um, <clears throat> he's saying, look, God knows that. And now if God does know from the beginning what our needs are, well then, why pray? And that, of course, raises the whole issue, like what is the point of the Day of Judgment? It's rather like what is the point of prayer, if God already knows. Well, prayer in essence then is for our benefit. And that's why when you read through the Psalms, and I suggest you do this, and I've done this twice, read right through the Psalms, uh, or let's say the Psalms of David, the first couple of books of Psalms, and just make a note, or just scribble in a different color in your Bible margin, wherever he's actually asking for something specific. It's only about one in ten verses, if that, where he's asking for anything. He's talking to God. This is what prayer is. It is talking to God. Not throwing a wants list at God and saying, well, you know, maybe I might get 20% of what I ask, so I'd better just make the list pretty long. Um, no. He is, he knows completely our needs right from the start. So then, God knows that you have need of all these things. Uh, what we read, and this is picked up again at the end of Matthew 6. Um, Don't take thought, verse 31, what shall we eat, drink, be clothed with? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, your Father knows that you have need of these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what he's saying is, have your focus on the kingdom and the things of the kingdom. And back here in Matthew 6, uh, verse 8, this is all leading on to the Lord's Prayer. Because in verse 9, after this manner, therefore, you should pray. Uh, a prayer that has a request for the kingdom as its opening uh, request and focuses around the glory of God. Rather than all these material things. The idea that God knows what you need before you ask, this is very much again out of the Old Testament, Isaiah 65, verse 24, where in a prophecy of the kingdom age, we are told, before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. And so the Lord is quoting that and saying, actually, that experience that people will have in the last day, in the, uh, let's say, in the millennium, in, in the... Uh, in the time of the establishment of God's kingdom, that is going on right here and now. So then, verse 9, after this manner, you should pray. Well, it's hard to understand this word manner in this style. Uh, I would say that it does mean in this style, rather than being a specific uh, request that we should just trot these words out. 
He's saying this is the basic structure that you should follow. And it's interesting that in the Lord's own prayers that are recorded, you see him following this pattern. And also a number of Paul's prayers repeat some elements of what uh, we have here in the, in the Our Father. So I think the idea is that this is a, a sort of a pattern prayer for us, rather than to be, be followed uh, literally by just re- repeating the actual words. Oh, there's obviously no harm in that. When you look at John 17, the Lord's Prayer there, you see that it, it breaks down into the same three kind of sections that you've got here in the, in the model prayer. Uh, it starts off, John 17, 1, uh, with a request for the name to be glorified, and then for God's work or his will to be finished, deliverance from the evil one, uh, and then finishes off with uh, the theme of glory to God. So you can say, I think, that this prayer is meant to be taken as uh, a structure for us to follow rather than something literal. Now, he starts off then, Our Father. And why does he, 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 uh, he start off with our I think it's maybe to encourage us when we pray to realize that I am not alone. Because this is a major spiritual problem for so many, that I am alone. And he's saying, our Father. But straight away you start off by realizing that I am not alone, that I'm not Elijah, I'm the only one who's left. There are others who also have God as their Father, the same God. And likewise, give us this day our daily bread. You may find that hard to pray if in your refrigerator you've got food to last you at least a a week and possibly a month in the refrigerator you have in your garage. How can you pray? Give me this day my daily bread. Well, meaningfully, you, you can't. But give us this day our daily bread, that is quite different. Because you are taking upon yourself the situation that there is out there in the the world of believers. Our Father, who is in heaven. Now, most biblical prayers that are recorded do start with this emphasis upon upon God. We are to visualize him there. And that's to be connected, I think, with a common teaching that you get in the Bible of lifting our eyes to heaven and praying. I think when they did that, they, they were showing that our Father who is in heaven, God is in heaven and you upon earth, therefore let your words be few, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2. And Ezra, Nehemiah and Solomon actually, they all start their prayers that are recorded with this same focus that you are there in heaven. And so I I suggest that that obviously should be our pattern. And again, I raise my uh, issue, which I know you don't all agree with me on, but that's that's good by me. Um, The the idea that that, that God is a material, corporeal, actual being and not a whiff of so-called spirit, whatever that might mean. God is spirit in the sense he's manifest in his spirit. God is a consuming fire. It doesn't mean that uh, you strike a match and there's God. It means that God is manifest in consuming fire. And so I personally find this idea of of belief in God as an actual entity, shall I put it that way, um, 
personally existing, having a spatial location called heaven, uh, I find that uh, very helpful in encouraging us to uh, approach him in prayer, knowing that he is there. And I think the Lord's Prayer is saying that, that we should start off prayer with that basic awareness. And uh, you, you have this implicitly, I would say, in a lot of later New Testament teaching about the Lord Jesus being at the right hand of the throne of God and that we can come with boldness before the throne. Hebrews 4, uh, etc. Now, if you understand prayer as a coming with boldness before your God, before his throne in heaven, then all I can say is that we are being encouraged to see God as having actual personal existence and an actual location. I find the idea that God equals spirit, that is that God is some sort of intangible, immaterial, etc., floating around, well, how do you pray to him? I don't know, because I don't believe that, but uh, I understand this is a, a common conception. But the idea that we've seen of shutting your door and talking to your father with all those stack of personal pronouns there, your father, etc., this total focus upon him, that I think, I cannot understand this any other way than to say that God is personal. Hallowed us, holy be your name. Now... You can understand a lot of the phrases in the Lord's Prayer in two ways. You can understand them as all asking for a specific one-time fulfillment, and also in a more general general way. Now, some would argue um, that uh, these aorist tenses here, uh, for example here, uh, would really imply, may your name be hallowed at one point in time. So then it would be a request for the return of Christ, Establishment of the kingdom, etc. Parallel to the next verse, your kingdom come. Now, that's one way to take it. Um, another way is to understand God's name as his character, his personality, his characteristics. You remember when Moses had the name declared to him, he uh, was told, Yahweh, the angel passed before him, Maybe God himself, I don't know, passed before him and, and declared that I am Yahweh, a God full of grace, forgiving, uh, justice, uh, etc. Uh, so the name of God is essentially his characteristics. The, the whole uh, argument about how it should be pronounced, the tetragrammaton, whether it should be Yahweh, Jehovah, Yahuva, or whatever, uh, is to me uh, a completely pointless discussion. Because the essence is not that. The essence of God's name is who he is. That is the, that's the point. And so by asking for that name, the essence of God's characteristics and principles to be hallowed in your life, you're asking that whatever you do comes back to give glory to him. And what is his glory? His glory is his name. When Moses says, show me your glory, Yahweh declares his name to Moses. And so we're asking then that all those characteristics are somehow manifest in our lives, through our lives, through our life decisions, etc. Your kingdom come, verse 10, that's how many English translations put it, but the Greek is um, 
rather blunt, come your kingdom, done your will. That's the idea. And I, it's been pointed out that that, that seems to reflect a, a sort of a lack of, shall we say, etiquette in, uh, in approaching a, a superior. And maybe this is part of the boldness in prayer, which is envisaged in you know, Hebrews 4, that we should come with boldness before the throne of grace. This idea of boldness is quite a theme in the New Testament, that this is a characteristic of the Christian life. And so when the Lord taught them to pray like this, they may have taken their breath a bit and thought, well, can you be that demanding of God? Can you be that close to God? And, of course, the answer is yes, you can. Now, what really does the Lord have in view when he talks about the kingdom of God? Well, a kingdom is the dominion over which a king reigns. And, in a sense, we are God's kingdom now. If we have him and the Lord Jesus as our king, and if their principles are what we, we uphold, then... That would be so, that we are uh, their kingdom and we extend God's kingdom insofar as we get other people to agree to come under the dominion of his principles. We are a colony of heaven, Philippians 3.20, that's how Moffat uh, paraphrases it. We are to pray for his kingdom to come so that his will may be done on earth. Well, does that imply that his will is not done on earth? Well, there we are at the very least, trying to discern his will from his word and to do his will. So then we are praying not only for the second coming when we pray for this, we are praying that his kingdom shall uh, come and, and, and spread in our lives, in every aspect of our lives, coming under his dominion, and also that it will spread worldwide. Your will be done. Well, again, as I said, you, you can uh, interpret that, the aorist tense there, as a demanding a one-time fulfillment at the coming of Christ. But it's also true that the will of God is associated with his desire for salvation. Follow that through in Ephesians 1.15, uh, Colossians 1.20, that God's will is that people should be saved. And so the doing of God's will <clears throat> is all about really getting ourselves and others to submit to his plan for salvation. Now, admittedly, the ultimate final fulfillment of that will be when the Lord returns. But if you go to the end of chapter 7, that is the end of the Sermon on the Mount... You read there, verse 21, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So the essence is to do the will of, of God, as Jesus has explained it here in the sermon. So that last bit of the Sermon on the Mount is really saying that to do the will of God is to actually be obedient to the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. And so when we pray then for God's will to be done, I think we, we can also see that as our asking for the strength to do his will, to obey the will of God, the will of Jesus, as it is expressed here in the sermon. And that would explain to me why the, the Lord's Prayer, the, this model prayer, has got a central uh, place within the structure of the sermon. 
I've read a lot of ideas about the structure of the Sermon on the Mount, and none of them make uh, any sense to me, because it just seems to me <clears throat> the Lord is talking about one thing, and then he seamlessly leads it on to another, and so on. And yet, I would have to agree that the in structural terms, the the sermon, the, um, the, the the Lord's Prayer here is absolutely central. It's placed in structural terms right in the middle of the sermon. And why is that? I think it's because there's connections within the Sermon on the Mount back to this prayer, and really this prayer is the the central point of the whole teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5 to 7. We are simply praying in that prayer for strength to actually put all this teaching he's giving into actual operation. So the coming of the kingdom and the doing of God's will are put in in parallel. Now, of course, the, the whole phrase your will be done is on the lips of the Lord in Matthew 26, 42 when he's in Gethsemane. Unfortunately, we can rattle off the Lord's Prayer, and it's actually very difficult to pray some of these things. You know how hard it was for him to pray, your will be done, not my will, but yours, although for him it meant the death of the cross. And it took him so long to pray that, that the disciples went asleep, fell asleep. So it must have taken him at least 20 minutes to pray that prayer, 10 minutes at least, to just pray that little phrase. Your will be done, and not mine. So, unfortunately, we can rattle it all off. And that is not the intention at all. Your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That's an unfortunate translation. Epi, the earth, as it n is done, n in heaven. Epi, in earth, uh, really implies spreading throughout the earth as it is done in heaven. The idea, I would say, is connecting with the Great Commission that the gospel is to go, the gospel of the kingdom, is to go into all the world. And the good news of the kingdom is not simply that the Lord Jesus is returning to establish a kingdom. The good news of the kingdom, as explained in the parables of the kingdom of God, is about life now, lived under the dominion of his teaching. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Now I said that it's so easy to pray the the Lord's Prayer, just rattle these phrases off, but it's actually very difficult. Really, can you really just ask God just enough bread for today? It's so difficult, isn't it, living as we are living in our lives in the 21st century, to pray like that when, you know, we don't have a bit of land outside on which we can grow our crops. Um, we, We need some sort of future planning. There has to be some attention to things like pensions and how ultimately you're going to provide for your family, etc. And yet he says, just ask enough for today. Live day by day. And of course the illusion is to the manner in, in the wilderness that you will be given enough food for today. Don't hoard it. If you hoard it, it goes bad. You can't store it up You've just got to have enough for today and just believe God's going to provide for you tomorrow as well. That's really hard to pray that. But look, God has promised that he will not uh, leave us without provision for our daily needs. 
This is really a challenge. It really is, especially, as I say, in an age which is without precedent, really, in terms of people not being able to uh, support themselves day by day unless they have money and some sort of structure to their financial and economic situation. It's very difficult to pray this. It becomes harder and harder as time goes on and as we move further away from, from the land. Now, it's also a, a phrase that the phrase that he uses is unusual. <clears throat> because the only noted use of the phrase is in the, the rations that were given to Roman soldiers. But even that is, is a bit vague, a bit of a vague connection. So the idea that he was coming up with would have been shocking for the disciples, that give us just the bread of today and no more. Look, I spent a lot of my life in the poorer world, mixing with people who are very, very poor, and looking back over those years, I can say that I, like David, have never seen the righteous begging bread. I mean, literally. Literally. Somehow God will provide. And if we can only believe that, and you can tell by my, the way I'm speaking, that I personally feel uncomfortable about this, and I expect you do as well. Um, not that that makes me feel any better. Um, the point is that if really God has promised to provide for our daily bread every day, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't fret about sorting out some smart uh, business plan or life plan that's going to see you right. Put your focus instead on the things of God's kingdom, not simply the coming of his kingdom, but as I have said, what I would call the extension of his kingdom in this world. Trying to translate this difficult phrase, give us this day our daily bread, the, the bread of, of today, etc. I can only think of, of the, the socialist dream in, in the years of the uh, USSR where there were canteens built. And in fact, in this church where we're here now, this actually was originally built in the 1960s as such a canteen. And the idea was that nobody would ever actually go hungry. That, that was the idea. And that you could come and get uh, just the very basic bit of food. Uh, just the food of today. Now they didn't have, and there is not in Russian a particular word for that, maybe payok but it doesn't capture the idea of just the food for, for today. But in, in the former East Germany, in the communist years, there was such a word, which I think is a bit better, Sättigungsbeilage, which really had the idea of just the food just for today, just enough to satisfy, just to satisfy you for now. That was the idea. So that is what I think the Lord is teaching. And as I say, it's very difficult to take on board. But that is his message, I do believe. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Maybe an allusion to the, to the Jubilee. Now this again is incredibly difficult to pray. To say to God, please forgive me as I have forgiven others. 
according to that measure that I have forgiven them with, please forgive me. Goodness, that's really hard to pray that. It's not simply, well, forgiveness is black or, black or white. You either forgive or you don't forgive. So forgive me because I've forgiven them. It, no, no, no. This is deeper than that. Forgive me as I have forgiven others. This introduces the whole idea of uh, quality of forgiveness. And there is a quality of forgiveness. As we all know, if you analyze what others have done to you and how you have responded, there is a quality connected to it. And as you forgive, uh, so you will be forgiven. And I think this sheds a lot of light on the old argument about should I forgive if the guy doesn't repent? Well, there is no direct Bible teaching about that, as I see it, in a black or white yes or no sense. But what there is, is this. As you forgive, so you will be forgiven. If you want to forgive someone only if they repent, how are you going to fare at the Day of Judgment? You did this, that, the other wrong, and you didn't even realize it. Well, you still sinned. The principles of the law of Moses teach that. The sins of ignorance are still required sacrifice and so forth. So what are you going to do? Well, I only forgave blokes who, who've got on the, on the carpet and, uh, and crawled up to me in repentance. Okay. Well, that is how you will be judged. That's what the Lord is saying here. And these issues are of eternal consequence. They really are. Now, in the Old Testament, um, sin is likened to a burden. It's not likened to a debt. And as far as I can see, this is the first time when the Bible uses this metaphor. So the Lord is changing the metaphor for sin from a, a burden to be carried to a debt that we have. Now, a debt implies that the person who lent us the money, which is God, allowed us to build up the debt. And he did, in the sense that every time we sinned in the past in our lives, he didn't strike us down dead. He said, okay, let's scribble that one. Put that on my account. So, this is a much richer metaphor, because, of course, the indebted person desperately wants to repay it, but I don't see how they can. As we started at the beginning of Matthew 5, and we opened our our discussions on the Sermon on the Mount, we saw how this is good news for those who want to be spiritual, for those who are poor in spirit, who are spiritually poor, but they hunger and thirst after righteousness. And this is continuing this. This is the idea that we are in debt because we didn't want to get in debt, but we did, and that's how we are, unfortunately. So then we are in debt to God. There was an idea in the first century that somehow the gods were in debt to man. Apollonius. O ye gods, give me the things which are owing to me. And you know what? That continues to this day. A lot of people think that God somehow owes me big time. When actually we are in deep debt to God and forgiven only by pure grace. Now, in Luke... Luke 6, when we get a sort of parallel account of this, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who sin against us. This again uses this aorist, which implies, forgive us this once. Just forgive me this once for my sins as I have forgiven others. And yet that is very much the language, I think, of the Day of Judgment. And we shall say this at the Day of Judgment. And what he, I think the Lord is saying is, look, 
Judgment is now. We make the answer now. The essence of it is going on right now. With that same uh, intensity that you would beg for the forgiveness of your sin on Judgment Day, do it now. But you must add, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us, therefore, not into temptation. And that Greek there, aistero, definitely means to lead inward. To lead inward. The internal process of temptation is in view here. And uh, James is pretty much a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And I think in his classic little passage there, James 1, 13 to 15, where he talks about how temptation is internal, I think he, he's got this passage in the Sermon on the Mount in, in view. The idea is that we can be led into temptation. Now, you can, as I say, interpret the whole Lord's Prayer as having a specific latter-day reference. And you can, you could justifiably translate this, don't lead us into the, the, the hour of trial, the, the time of tribulation, peraismos. And you've got that in Revelation 3, verse 10, that the Lord Jesus can keep us from the hour of trial, same word translated temptation, which is coming on the whole world. Pray that you enter not into temptation. Mark 14, 38, the same, same word. You, you could understand that as don't let us go into the time of tribulation. And I don't doubt that it has that meaning. But I think also that God is able to lead people in an upward and a downward spiral. Saul is the classic case of this. He had an evil spirit from the Lord upon him, which clearly had a psychological uh, dimension to it. And there is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God also came upon Saul in a positive way uh, to, to make him prophesy, etc. So God is able to lead a person. And this is what we're asking him not to do, not to lead us down the downward spiral, but deliver us from evil. I think 2 Peter 2.9 has that in mind. The Lord knows how to deliver, same word, the godly, out of temptations. Why? Well, that's the significance of the last bit. For yours is the kingdom. Why exactly would he, would he say that? You know, keep us from sinning, basically. Forgive us our sins. Save us, forgive us from sinning, because yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. What is the force of this for? Well, I think the force of it is that the kingdom is God's. And he has thought up the whole idea of the kingdom for people like you and me. And so, obviously, he wants people to be in the kingdom. I think that's the idea. Because yours is the kingdom, and because you want people to be there, therefore, he's saying... Forgive me my sins, give me the power against temptation, keep me in the way. May I have your kingdom coming in my life, do your will in my life, according to the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, because I know and I believe that you want me there. You want to save me. I believe this. Yours is the kingdom. So please, let me be there. 